Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. What's up? What is up? It's your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. This week, I'm joined from Chicago, Illinois by... Josh Modell, executive editor. What's up, Elio? Hey, hey, how you feeling out there? I am feeling DJ Khaled. How are you feeling? I don't know what that means, but I'm excited. It seems like it's like a really good thing to feel because then you just yell it and it feels good. So I'm taking it. That's my new way of saying that I'm feeling good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, out there in Chicago, the leaves are turning and it's fall out here in Brooklyn. We're starting to get gusts of wind. But this week's show takes us out to the always sunny Los Angeles. Yes, a beautiful, calm, sunny conversation from two L.A.-based guys. (laughs) On the show this week, Jackson Phillips of the band Daywave in conversation with Pete Yorn. The two sat down to celebrate the release of Yorn's new record, Caretakers, that just came out in August, which Jackson co-produced. Yeah, this is Yorn's first album in three years, but the guys had an amazing career, starting with 2001's Music for the Morning After, which is a stone classic. That was a big hit. It's a great record. And, you know, subsequent records, awesome too. The guy has had a really consistent career as a pop songwriter. This is a guy who's collaborated with some real talents over the years. Yorn's worked with Frank Black of the Pixies, released an EP with Scarlett Johansson. He picks great collaborators, and Jackson Phillips is no exception. You can really hear Phillips' sound all over Caretakers. From that record, let's check out the track, Calm Down. Great song. And, you know, the story of this record, it really is Jackson helping Yorn be a little more spontaneous in the studio. And I think you can really hear that on that track. Yeah, it's a very cool pairing of two very different talents. Jackson came up through Berkeley School of Music, and his first project of note was the electropop band Carousel. He's gone on to work with Jai Wolf, members of Foster the People, and French singer Soko, who also appears on this record with Yorn. Let's give a listen to Daywave's single from last year, Still Let You Down. It's a great sound. Yeah, that's a killer track. In the process of becoming collaborators, the two have also become friends, and their conversation really takes in a lot here. We hear about the benefits and drawbacks of getting a musical education. We hear, like so many people, how the Smiths and the Cure changed the direction of Yorn's life. Been there. I think I'm still there. (laughs) (laughs) They get into the pluses and minuses of working in both small and big recording studios. And working with small and big record labels. Yep. Their chat also takes in the first song Pete ever wrote, how to keep the magic of a song fresh both in studio and on stage, and backgammon for troubled youth. Should we roll a tape? Let's hear it. 
Hey, this is Pete Yorn. I'm sitting here with Mr. Jackson Phillips of the legendary band Daywave. Uh, will you introduce yourself to the, to the uh, I'm Jackson Phillips. Uh, yeah. And what's your occupation? I'm a musician, producer, songwriter, I guess, all those things. Where'd you grow up? Grew up in Mill Valley, California, which is like just north of San Francisco, right across the Golden Gate Bridge. You like basketball? I like basketball. I didn't love it as a kid because I wasn't that good at it. I was better at baseball. For some reason, I got into watching basketball. And you're a Golden State Warriors fan? Yeah. That's your team? Yeah. Yeah, they're a good team. I, I would say, well, Jax and I were working on this record. Uh, when the playoffs came around, it was always fun. He'd, he'd be very excited about the the Warriors games. I heard something interesting about you that um, you start off as a drummer. Is that true? Yeah, I started playing drums in, I guess fourth grade or something. I don't even know how. I, I think I wanted to play an instrument and my parents just like picked drums for me because I think it was less of a cliche than playing guitar or something. I don't know. I, I almost kind of wish they would have given me a guitar, but they gave me drums. Yeah. And then I, I kept playing throughout, you know, middle school. I got into my first band when I was in eighth grade. And then that's when I got really into music. I, I think when I started, or that's when I got really into like playing music and trying to be a good musician. Uh, I was always obsessed with listening to albums, but once I started playing in a band, I was like, oh, wow, I need to get so good at this. But then, yeah, in high school, I kept playing, started doing more jazz. And then when I went to college, I went to Berklee College of Music. And that's when I started playing piano and started like veering away from the drums. And I started getting into production and learning that whole thing. And then it wasn't until a couple of years after that that I picked up guitar. Wow, so it was very late for you. Yeah, I was 25 when I bought wow. my first guitar, or 24. That's wild. Yeah. I think as a kid, drums are a great introductory instrument because all you have to do is hit them to get a sound. Like piano is also in that way where you're going to press, you know, a key and you're going to get a sound. But yeah, but guitars, you know, you definitely have to have developed some hand strength or be willing to, you know, put in some extra work there for sure. I think being able to play drums as like a foundation kind of sets you up pretty well to play guitar or piano because they're both like really rhythmic. I mean, guitar for me, it was like the rhythm stuff at that point was not difficult. I mean, it's kind of hard to learn how to pick, but that doesn't take too long. It's really like being able to have a good sense of rhythm and good time is like such a crucial thing for any melodic or harmonic instrument also. But I think because also coming from having already learned piano, learning guitar, like it's not like I, I already knew some theory and stuff, so I knew how to apply it to guitar, but I just kind of, I take a lot of shortcuts. Like instead of learning bar chords in like the normal way, I just like, I started by playing in open tunings and then like I figured out, oh, this is, I can play a one chord, two chord, three chord, four, five, six, you know, all the chords and the major scale or whatever. I could figure out cool voicings and how to play them really easily without like, doing a bar chord. So I, don't, I still actually don't know how to play like normal bar chords. Yeah, you would always have weird <laughs> tunings whenever I would go to Jackson's house to record. I'd be like, oh, give me this guitar. I got this song idea. And I'd pick it up and I'd strum it. And like it was a no supposed to be normal tuning and it would be like, blong. Like it would just be this weird tuning every yeah. time. And I, we'd have to sit there and, and tune it so that I could actually get a proper sound out of it for me. But I think it's, it's one thing that's it's fun to play with you. Like just... Um, 
you know, either when we have the band with us or or just even acoustic, because you always do different voicings on the same chords that I do, and we're not really overlapping, and so it's like a naturally it just fits together in a different kind of way, mm-hmm. and so I think it sounds interesting that way. The drum thing, you know, I did grew you, up in Jersey, and my, my older brother, drums? I started on drums too, and a lot of, going back, I like Iggy Pop was a drummer first. There are a lot of artists that were started behind the drums, and it is a good foundation for sure. I never learned to read music. Like, I know you have a little more theory under your belt, and you could read that, but I, I was too hyperactive, and I don't want to say lazy, but I was too just like, I liked, it was just fun for me, and the whole learning how to read music seemed yeah. like work to me. No, I was and never I was, into that either. I, I would, learned like drum music, how to read drum music a tiny bit because I sort of had to um, in my drum lessons and in classes and stuff. But really I, all I ever cared about was just like making something that sounded good to me. Like, so I, I'm not, I don't actually know how to like read music very well, but that you know though, like you could speak of like the five chord or the three chord. And I don't even, I still can't figure out what that means. And the guys in my bands would, would, would kind of beat it's like this, and I'd be like, I don't know what. Just show me the chord. I like, mean, I, I don't know what the number is. I think it's is. helpful to be able to talk about it, to be able to talk about music in that way. But as far as being creative, I don't even know if it's helpful to know that sort of stuff because it takes away a lot of the mystery. I mean, I'm sure, it, like, once you develop the ear for it, it's all the same because you probably, when you're writing a song, you know, like, oh, I could go to the G chord, but like that, you know, that sound might be very classic to you or it might like just the movement of knowing what you're going to do like that it should go here uh, sometimes I can box you in I can be like well maybe I should go to the two chord right here like two minor or something and then I'm just like thinking about what I'm doing and it's taking away from like the magic or something whereas like if you're able to like not know what comes next or something or I don't know sometimes it's just it's easier to find something that sounds new to you and fresh and yeah i remember justifying not learning how to read music is like that it would it would box me in or it would make me do things like everybody else does it and i liked that you know maybe i didn't have the theory under my belt but i just did things my own way and my mom you know she was a piano teacher and she taught the kids in our neighborhood and she had, when she was a teenager she played at carnegie hall she was really she was really good and i remember after I learned guitar when I was like 13, 14, I'd be like, come on, mom, let's like jam something out, you know? And if she didn't have music in front of her, she couldn't follow. Like I was like, dude, just look at, play these chords. And she really couldn't unless she had music. I didn't know your mom was a piano player. And uh, I remember thinking that was like so weird that you could, because I always could just hear it too, to an extent. Like if you, if I heard a melody, I'm like, oh, I could just play that melody yeah. back, you know? And just to be the other way where you're just kind of tied to, the music that opens up something else completely different, which is amazing. But uh, I remember just being like, eh, I don't know, maybe it makes me more original that I can't, you know, read stuff like that. And then after years went by, I remember just using that as the justification yeah. for never learning to, to read. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't think you need to know how to read. I mean, it definitely, time and all the great artists in, who have come along will prove to you that you don't know how to read. I mean, it's, it's more about an ear thing. If, I mean, yeah, it's like you were saying, so many artists who may grow up learning classical and they know how to read, they don't know how to like write a song or like they don't hear it. They just know how to, they just have the correlation between like the music on the paper and their fingers and like what to do, but they don't actually understand like how to create it or like, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. 
Yeah. It's a different skill. And then there are like super wizards who they know theory and they can create music on this unbelievable level. Mm-hmm. You look back like, you know, these guys are putting notes on a piece of paper and then people go back and they play them and it's like, oh wait, they erase a note, they put it, they change it in, in process. Yeah. And I, me- I remember being like really blown away by people who can do that and uh, have it also be great and, and, and make you feel. Ultimately music for me is all about how it makes me feel. Yeah, and so I was worried that the kind of the science of it would take away feeling. But when people know how to do the science and create the feeling, like real composers, it's kind of it's 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 really it's, a special. I guess it's possible to have both. You know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But so, what age did you start playing music? I, my parents tried to give me piano lessons when I was like five, but I was way too hyperactive, and I remember sitting there with uh, my mom's friend's son, who was trying to teach me. She wasn't going to teach me. Your mom would, wasn't going to teach yeah, you? Yeah, I'd sit there and my leg would be like, just like yeah, yeah. shaking. And I'd just be like, uh, and I would like sit there for a minute and, you know, I could play a melody back kind of quick, but like I was like, the whole, the whole, learning, trying to learn the whole learning the notes and, and all that yeah. stuff, I just didn't have, I was crazy little kid. I would run around, I would just get up yeah. and run around. And so it wasn't happening. But then, and then I remember like third grade, you can play violin in the elementary school and so I tried that I like we rented the violin and it was just like yeah you know it was terrible and I also didn't apply myself at all you know and then for once you got into fourth grade you could get into the brass instrument so I we rented a saxophone from the from the orchestra place and that that as well I just (laughs) none of these things I would I just never applied myself uh and I couldn't get a sound out of it really other than a squeak but all this time that my older brother I had two older brothers and so my middle brother was like six years older than me and there was a drum set in my basement and they would be playing like they were when I was like seven you know they were in like junior high and high school my brothers and they would have their friends come over into our basement in Jersey and they'd be playing like metal covers like or hmm. like they'd have like their burnout friends come over and they'd be wheeling like Marshall Stack down to our basement and they'd be playing like Breaking the Law by Judas Priest and like just metal covers, uh, Iron Maiden stuff. And I would be like seven years old watching them downstairs like, whoa, this is pretty cool. And then they would leave and I'd be like, I can do that. I remember like in my head thinking like, like let me get behind those drums and yeah. I would just start messing around. And I remember my middle brother, he's like, all right, here's a beat. Just here's like a boom, ba, boom, boom, ba. Take, the, take your hand, put it on the hi-hat, kick the drum, and, and here you go. And I just picked it up right away, and then that was it. I just like loved drums, and I played that for years. And so I didn't learn guitar until I was like 13 or 14. And I remember the summer before I learned guitar, they had a mandatory guitar class in my elementary school and public school. And everyone had a classical guitar uh, that was like, the school had them. Yeah, like the nylon string. Yeah, and uh, I didn't apply myself at all and I got a D in it. I remember I, I would just like um, play bass lines. I remember I'd play like like Blister in the Sun, like Violent Femmes bass line or like Smoke on the Water. But I, when it came down to learning the first position chords, which is all they were really teaching and reading the music, I just didn't do it. Uh, so I barely got by. But then that summer, I was away at like some summer camp somewhere in upstate New York in the Catskills. And there were all these British counselors who were there. I guess they would come and they'd they'd work as counselors for like the first month of the summer and then they would go and travel America. 
And I remember these guys were all into the Smiths and the Cure. And one guy had a guitar and he started playing these Smith songs. And I was just like, whoa, what's this? And yeah, then you finally heard something that like caught your ear and like an emotional level. More yeah, than just, like, exactly. A it changed thing. everything. And yeah. then I, and they showed me some chords and I was like, oh, and so after that summer in the spring or I got a D in the class and then I went to the summer camp and kind of learned all the chords. And then in the fall, if I would have had the class then, I would have gotten an A because I would have known all the chords. Yeah. And it's just funny how that worked out. It's really hard with music to try and learn it from a point where like, you, there's no emotional connection to anything. Like You have to like want to learn your favorite song or something. It has to be something that like draws you to it. In like a guitar class or a piano class, it's just like there's just nothing exciting about that. It's just all technical. There's, you're just like, what's the point yeah. of this? I think it was an age thing too, where like as a little kid, I, I was, you know, I was into this metal that my bros were cranking and, and I loved it. I would play drums to, you know, Maiden and Priest. That was like my thing. I was, mm -hmm. I used to sit in front, like we lived out in the sticks yeah. and we got cable pretty late. And I remember we had just got MTV and I would sit watching like praying for a Judas Priest video to come on. Like I was all I would care about. And then I loved those bands, but, as soon as I became like 13, 12, 13, and I heard, you know, the Smiths or the Cure, like everything changed. All of a sudden yeah. I was like, whoa. And that's what made me want to really pay attention to guitars because I'm like, they're kind of singing about stuff that it's like making me think about things or feel yeah. a certain way. And I want to dress a certain way. The whole thing like kind of got me. And so I remember the shift happened where like, okay, drums are fun, but I can't really write songs on drums. Mm -hmm. I want, I need something melodic. And so the guitar, as soon as I was able to learn some chords, I just started writing songs. I wasn't like, oh, I want to write songs. It just happened like right away. How old were you when you wrote your first like, I was song 12 or 13. Can you remember that, like those songs or The first really? song I wrote was called The One. Really? <laughs> Ironically, it's called The One. And it was, I rhymed, I remember years later thinking that it was lame because I rhymed fire and desire. But then, <laughs> then oh, there's a lot of songs that did that actually. Yeah. But I remember I wanted to write a song that sounded like The Cure. And the, the lyrics were, she was the princess of the underworld. Her lips were red like fire. She told me once or so I thought that love was her desire. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, it had a cool melody. It had a cool beat. And you know, that was my first song that I ever wrote. And it's actually not horrible if I went back to it yeah. today. Being able to write as an outlet, I remember, was a nice thing as a kid. And I never thought that I'd do it as a career. It was always just for fun. You know, it was just like a fun... So you kept playing in high school and stuff and writing songs and you yeah. probably had a band or something. Yeah, I think freshman year I was a drummer in a band. We were, the band was called Cheese. And it was these Good two name. other kids, Eric Dubarry and Christian Seal. And they they were like best friends. One played guitar, one played bass, and they knew all the like they got me into the replacements pretty early, I remember. They were really ahead of their time, I feel like. Like they were kind of like proto almost like that grunge, but not Nirvana grunge. They were kind of like ahead of the curve of that. And like they were interesting guys. Um, I haven't seen them in years. I ran into Eric Dewberry, whose nickname was Doobage Doobie. Hmm. I ran into him in Portland. Uh, he was a bike messenger and like I was crossing the street and this was maybe like 10 years ago. And he was like, Pete. And I was like, oh my God. And I hadn't seen him since high school. It was wow. really weird. So that was cool to see him. But um, yeah, that was my first band. We played like in the high school gymnasium. And then we played in a talent show. But then it wasn't until junior year where I finally sang in front of a band, like got out from behind yeah, the drums. So I used yeah. to play drums and sing. And then, That's and funny then, always. <laughs> and then some other band was like, they heard me sing and they were like, 
yo, Pete, will you sing a Rockin' in the Free World with us, a Neil Young song? And I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? So I ended up playing guitar and singing on that. And they were like a metal band. It was like a heavy version. Mm-hmm. And they were called Backgammon for Troubled Youth. And I didn't even know how to play Backgammon then, but it's one of my favorite games now. And then we won. We ended up winning the talent show. And I remember that was like, uh, the singing thing's pretty cool. But, yeah. you know, it, it was still not for a career. I was going to go to college. And, but and you, so you went to college. I went to college and uh, I was supposed to be a tax lawyer. Did you graduate? Yeah, I graduated. It was important. I knew like for my family, it was like, I want to waste my dad's money. He had sent me two years. Two years in, I knew, like, I think I want to do music, but I'm like, I better finish school. Yeah. Because I knew it was important for them. And my grandfather would always say, you have to have something to fall back on. And so, you know, they just go full music. You know, it was scary. You knew you wanted to do that when you were in college? By junior year, I knew that I want to take a shot at music. Did you have, like, a band or were you just, like writing songs alone or something? I was writing a lot of songs. I was smoking a lot of weed. It was very cold in Syracuse, New York, and I smoked a lot of weed and stayed inside mostly. And I remember I I was writing like four songs a day sometimes. It was just like Whoa. crazy flurry of songs. And uh, I didn't really play out. I was the drummer in a band there. Like I drum, I still love yeah, drums. Still. And I think I could hide behind the drums in a way, you know? And so actually this guy, Joe Kennedy, who was in my touring band for years, Joey Kay, I found him through a one ad at the student center. There was this like, you know, drummer needed thing with the phone numbers, you know, all feathered out in the yeah, bottom yeah. of a piece of paper. And it said, if you're into the who and the posies hmm. and uh, dinosaur junior, you know, call this number. And I was like, that sounds fun. And uh, so I called and uh, me and my buddies went with me, two of my friends who I'm still pretty close with, went with me to this weird house off campus. And uh, I walk in and Joey K was there. And they tried me out. Like we played like a couple songs, and he's within like two songs. Like, yep, you're in. That's it, you know. And and the the bass player was this guy Warren, who was like super hippie dude. He, like, yeah. Like we were playing like Dinosaur Junior songs and and Posey songs, and I remember we were playing Positive Bleeding by uh by Urge Overkill. I remember. <laughs> and the bass player was this super hippie dude, and then the lead guitar player was this like Hesher metalhead dude. Like it was such a random band. Nice. But it was fun. And we played out a few times. The band was called Andy Said 15 as a reference to Andy Warhol said everyone has 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. Yeah. But then years later, Joe, Joey K graduated. And then as I was about to maybe put out my first record, he showed up at one of my shows at Largo. You know, and it wasn't back then, it wasn't like Facebooky. Like you couldn't mm-hmm. really, you lost touch with people, you know? And he showed up after I hadn't seen him in maybe four years. And He's like, Pete, it's Joey K. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh my God. And then I pulled him into the band because he's such a sick musician. He was our secret weapon player. So how did you get from college to like the point where you were like signed and doing your first album and stuff? So I graduated in 96. Yeah. And I moved out right after that. I graduated in April, moved out to California in May, and I knew I was going to try and do music. And I, I was supposed to go to law school, but I knew that, all right, I'm not going to law school, but... If I went to law school, it would take three years of law school and then I'd have to pass the bar before I could become a lawyer for real. So I was like, okay, I'll give myself three years to try and get a record deal. And goes back then, getting a record deal was everything. That was a big deal, yeah. Yeah, and so I was playing around. My brother was a drummer in my band. My other friend from college like, had randomly drove out and he was going to go to law school. And then I, I, I called him and he's like, oh, I'll come play bass with you. So, so you moved was, to LA? Yeah, I moved to LA. And uh, we were playing around a little bit 
and nothing was happening. There was some interest and I was just kind of improving. I think I was writing better and better songs. Was there some sort of notion that like if you went to LA, you would get signed or you, that was kind of why you went? Or Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that element of it. Like there was a lot going on in LA. I had been visiting LA since I was in college. My yeah. two older brothers had moved out there and we were best friends. It was like there was no way I wasn't moving to where my brothers were. If they lived in Dover, Delaware, I would have moved to Dover, Delaware. And so, But this is like 97 or 98 or 96, something? 97, yeah. 98. I got signed in 99. Okay. Yeah, I was just playing around and, you know, we had some interest, but it was, we actually got offered a deal, but it was a weird deal. And I was like, nah, I'm not doing that. And then, and then at some point I remember in late 98, I was like, you know, I'm some I'm sick of playing out. I just want to like try and make this crazy record. Yeah. And that's when I met Walt Vincent, who I made music for the morning after with. We just like kind of met. Did at you a make Sloan the concert. record before getting signed? Or you started it? Or we something? started it. We were just recording songs and in the middle of recording the songs is when I officially got signed to because Columbia. Because they heard the songs? Yeah, they heard they heard yeah. some of the demos, which ended up being the versions on the record. Yeah. And then I played for them as well. You did the classic thing that you went into the I went in office. with the acoustic guitar of the yeah, office. Yeah, it's something that you like see in a movie. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I remember I did it. Well, the first time I went and played for Donnie Einer in New York City and uh, he's like, it was it was totally like, all right, kid, what do you got? Like yeah, one of those show moments. Me what you got. And yeah. I'm like, hold my, you know, I'm like, you know, you hear this like your life comes down to like one or two moments. This might be one of those yeah, moments, you yeah. know? And I play, I remember I played Just Another Girl and mm-hmm. I played Murray and he went, eh, pretty good. He's like, all right, we'll be in touch. And that yeah. was it. And we left and I was like, all right. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I expected that day, if anything would happen, but just kind of kept my head down, kept working and, and didn't hear nothing. And then a few months later, we get a call that Donnie was sending this guy, Will Botwin. He was going to be in LA. He was another A&R guy and, and he wanted to see me. Come to see the show. I, he was going to come to my house actually oh. and just kind of see me, meet me and see if I had anything else. And I always tell this story on stage, but luckily it was like literally like a day or two before this uh, producer guy who I knew who lived around the corner from me, he showed me a, a chord that I don't know what the chord is, but it's the that weird chord in life on a chain. And he said, Pete, I want you to go home and write a song with this chord on it. Yeah. And so I said, all right, I'll, I'll try, you know, not thinking much of it. And I literally did. And then I met with that guy, Will, the next day. And he's like, you got anything new? And I was like, well, I wrote this song just now. And I played him Life on a Chain. And right when I finished the song, he said, let's do something. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, let's make a record, you know? And that's when I got signed. And I remember it was like, what? It, was, it just it was, happened like that. Chills because this it really was, did. This, it was after a few years. This but, guy was from Columbia. Yes. And the original guy you met in New York was also from Columbia. Yeah, he was like the boss man. So he pretty much sent out like a head A&R or something to like, go make, I kind of want to sign this guy, but make sure like it's actually good. And then he was like, all right, let's do it. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like that's part of what was going on. And I feel like he probably saw Will and was like, if you like them, you can yeah, do it. You know, yeah. I had friends though at the time get like these crazy deals yeah, and like a lot of money, you know, and, and then nothing would happen. Like they get dropped after the yeah, first record. And I remember mine tale. was just like a conservative deal. They weren't really sure what to do with the record. I remember, but, but it was really exciting because Columbia was like, you know, it was Bruce was on that label. Yeah. Leonard Cohen was on that label. Dylan, Neil Diamond. It was like, you know, I was like, wow, this is like a big thing. Was there like some, because I assume like you kept making the record after you got signed. It was like halfway through. Was yeah. there a moment where you made like a song where you're like, holy shit, this song is really good or something like Strange Condition or something? Or did you not think much of any of it? 
I remember I loved the recording of Just Another. Yeah. And on your side, I remember getting excited. Like really being like, it was like this, it seemed mysterious to me. I was like, wow, like I can't believe we got this sound and this feeling. Yeah. And the way that me and Walt were recording was very much like the way you and I were recording. That yeah. just kind of like creating in the moment. Not overthinking it too much. Not overthinking yeah. it and just letting each, each instrument that we laid down take us to the next one. Yeah. Like, wouldn't get too ahead of ourselves. It'd be like, okay, we just laid that bass and that bass sounds different than I thought it would sound. But you know what's making me think of like yeah. the Beach Boys here, which makes me want to lay this part down, yeah. you know, or yeah, stuff yeah. like that. That's my favorite way to work. And when you work that way, I feel like you set yourself up for like little happy accidents, mm-hmm. you know, like, like I always say, like I, sometimes I like to have a song like 70% done, but then you leave 30% for that magic in the studio to happen. Yeah. And then other times when you're just creating while you're working, there's just like, there's a potential for a lot of that magic to happen. And I think that's an important thing that sometimes, you know, studio environments can get too tight and too sterile and too planned. Yeah, and like, that's not what music's about for me. Yeah. It know? goes back to that whole thing of taking music lessons it's kind of the similar thing where like if it's if there's nothing that is connecting you to it it's like you you're not going to apply yourself and i feel like that could happen in a studio where like it all feels sterile and you're not quite connecting because yeah you might not have full control over everything like in a home studio well, i mean i guess most studios now are like home studios but just having more control and being able to get things to a point where you're like connecting emotionally with it or able to actually get what you're hearing in your head out there. Like I feel like in a big studio, that's kind of difficult to do because you have a lot of, um, just a lot of gear in the way, you know? It's just like, especially as a musician, if you're not like one of these like wizard, like big studio producer engineers, like you're not going to know how anything works. And in order to get like what you want, to be recorded like there's all this stuff in the way and the people the gatekeepers are like these engineers and producers and if they're you're not on the same page with them like forget about it so it's just like i think it's gotta really align yeah i mean back in the day it would be like all right this engineer did worked on this record that i love and i know you know and this guy mixed this and so there's that sensibility that i feel like they could help bring to it i mean i'm going back almost 20 years it was still that like i feel like i remember when a friend of mine was like, yeah, I got this thing, Pro Tools. And I remember yeah. like, I had just been recording at like Cherokee Studios on Fairfax, this old, you know, this is the Rob Brothers studio and there was tape and, you know, that was all we knew. And also my friend's like, yeah, I got this thing called Pro Tools. And I remember it sounded so nerdy to me. I was like, yeah. Pro Tools? What's yeah. that? You know, like, wait. Uh, so your first album though, that was not on Pro Tools. First album was on Digital Performer. I had Digital Performer at Berkeley. It was like one of the first DAWs that they taught us. Motu? And yeah, Motu. Yeah. And it just seemed so outdated. I was like, well, who uses this? Yeah. And like the teachers there were like, no, I promise you, this is like the industry standard. And the I, MIDI interface was was tricky too. It was just, it was yeah. terrible. And you needed the timepiece, yeah. the external time clock yeah, and all exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. It was a nightmare. Yeah, it was It was weird. We bounced everything to tape. I remember. You, you made it work. Brad Wood was working with us at at that point, who's a great producer, and uh, he's like, "Okay, we're gonna bounce it all to tape at the record plant, yeah, and then we're gonna mix it there." So it was this kind of balance of like making it in a garage on, but then having some digital performer, yeah. and then dumping it to like something so thicker. So you did do that. You ran it through tape and we, stuff. We did do that. And I don't know, you know, I think the idea was that it would sound maybe a little better, a little fatter, but I don't yeah. know if it if even it did. did like you know, there's yeah. always like. 
Brad's rough mixes that we that sounded amazing yeah. too. But then he did some great mixes in the studio as well. So so at what, it was cool. It was a fun process. It made us feel like these kids who were on Columbia Records, or yeah. you know, who made this record in a garage, and no one knew who Walt was. I remember it was like, okay, I think it made the label feel better that like, yeah. okay, we were going to a real studio to kind of. Mix yeah, it, it made them know? feel. Yeah, then you know, and maybe it felt like it was an thing. extra little process for us. I don't know. Um, at what point did you realize that the album was doing well? I feel like we turned the record in, and like it sat for a while before it came out. I think it was done about a year before it came out. It oh, came out really? March twenty seventh, two thousand one, and it wasn't till I think they started to send it out to some press, and everyone just seemed to really respond to it. And I remember that was what kind of got them really excited. I remember like, oh yeah, people like this record, Pete, you know, and then that, got, that gave me, got them excited and then they gave it a pretty good push. I feel like it was one of the last old school record pushes for a yeah. new artist that you get. It was right before Napster and all that stuff really yeah. kind of blew up. It, uh, it was a cool time, but um, yeah, they, you know, we put it out in March of 2001 and had a really good run with it. I toured for 18 months straight wow. on it and in the middle of it was 9-11 happened and we wow. were on tour for that. And that that was weird because we had to, we just kept touring through it and it was just a weird time. You know, everyone mm -hmm. was scared and we were flying so much. And I remember I got, I started to get a lot of anxiety because every flight I was on, I was thinking like, what, some, what's going to happen? Like, is something going to go down? It was definitely a weird time. It was good music to have at that moment though, I feel like. But let's bring it back. I know we haven't touched upon this, but do you want to talk a little bit about how, how we met? Sure. How that came together? So my manager brought me to a birthday party. Britain? Yeah, Britain. Yeah, he brought he brought me to a birthday party for um, kind of the head of the management company, Ian. And uh, it was at a really, you know, at Ian's house in Malibu. It was really cool. And there were so many artists there, all the all the bands from the roster, you know, uh, were there. It was Ian's 50th. It was a big deal. Yeah, and like everyone was there and... Uh, I remember being like, is that Jack White over there? Like, yeah. yeah, it was cool. But yeah, at some point in the night, we saw you like across the yard and we were both like, oh, is that Pete Yorn? Like, because at some point, both of us had been a fan of your music. And we were like, yeah, let's go talk to him or something. <laughs> and, and then I think we walked over and you were like, hey, Daywave, like I know you. And so like, and then I was like, oh, whoa, you know my band? That's crazy. And yeah, and we just got to talking. And I don't even really remember if we talked about making music or anything, but we were just like, I was saying like, oh, I love your song On Your Side and... Yeah, I don't really remember like too well. I think we were kind of drunk. It was late. It was late. It was the latter part of the night. Yeah, it was before like things got really blurry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had come with with my wife Beth, and we that was like one of our first date nights out since uh, we had had the baby. And I remember she was like, "All right, well, I'm gonna get back to relieve the babysitter, but you stay." Uh, so I'm like, all right, I'll stay. And then I remember like everyone started celebrating the birthday and Jamie Foxx was there, I think. And he's like mm -hmm. pulling shots yeah, out. Jamie Foxx was like, he was like MC. the MC. Yeah. He was hilarious. Yeah, it was really funny. But that was before, that was earlier before I met you. But yeah, when I met you, it's so, it was just weird because I had been seeing you around on uh, my Instagram on the Harvest Records site. And before that, I follow Andy Bell from Ride on Twitter and he tweeted something about Hazel English, who mm -hmm. you also produce. So I was like, wow, this is cool. And so it was all this stuff came together and then and then you were in front of me and it was, and it was so cool to meet. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Britain said you guys should do something together, you know, in the studio at some point. Yeah, it might have been brought up, but yeah, it wasn't for another couple months. 
And then, yeah, I think it was a couple months later, you came over to my, where I lived at the time in Echo Park. And um, we just like talked and like listened to music. And I, I showed you some of the music that I had done. I remember I was telling you that I wasn't really that happy with how my album went with Harvest because I, I felt like I liked my demos more. But it was that type of thing where, you know, I think they really wanted to push to alternative radio. And so it kind of like, took the music into this other place, you know, and I think we talked about that and you had shared some similar experiences where you're like, oh yeah, this is, this happens. You might like, when you work with other people, sometimes it doesn't turn out the way you want or something. And like, you know, yeah, I feel like you gave me some, some wisdom, you know, from being like, oh, I've been through that. It happens. And then it could be so frustrating. Yeah. Even once in a while, there'll be like, like a demo version of a song will come up on my shuffle and it's not the version that made it onto a record. And I'll yeah. hear the demo and it'll just cut right through yeah. me. And I'm like, oh, like why did it, yeah. this why did I keep going? I like know. and and then I'll listen to the version on the record. I'm like, there's it's good, it's fine, there's nothing wrong with yeah. it. But sometimes maybe it's just an idea in our heads, like that it didn't get the chance that it could have, or there's an innocence to it. Sometimes those demo versions sound so good. I got really worked up about it a few yeah. weeks ago on this one song. Really? A song I have called Close. There's a demo of it that came on I hadn't heard in years. And I was like, oh, like what was I thinking? And then the version on the record on Back and Forth, I went back and listened. I was like, yeah, it's it's a good, it's good. It's yeah. fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's something about but it's the not original, that you know, original It just thing. feels like a compromise or something. Yeah, well, I mean, at least... For me, like having that experience with my album where like I, I started off producing everything, doing everything myself, mixing it myself, mastering it myself. And it wasn't until really like when I gave away all of that to somebody else to do to like help, you know, produce and mix it. I realized it just wasn't, it wasn't going to end up how I wanted it to because I had the vision and like I, you know, I'd done it before with my EPs and stuff and so to give that away and, and then to trust the label and be like, well, it's going to change it a little bit, but maybe it's for the better and like it's going to you know do what it's supposed to do because they know what they're doing. And then when you realize they don't know what they're doing and you just kind of gave away your creativity and then you put this thing out that isn't really what you wanted, um, it's kind of, yeah, it's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, it could be frustrating. Yeah. But it, when you look back, like sometimes you could be harder on yourself, like, like it's good to have an open mind and try things. And yeah. sometimes you try things and they work out the way you want. Sometimes, you know, the result maybe isn't isn't what you wanted. And, you know, there have been times where I've been like, man, you should have just been stronger and put your foot down. But then what if I really look at it and just like see it for what it was, go, in some ways it took a lot of courage to, to, to not be such a control freak yeah, and try, try some yeah. other things. So, you know, it's like you look at it through a distorted lens often and ultimately I think it all leads you to where you're going anyway. You know, it might not be a direct line, but like you try things and you pick up something from working with somebody else. But yeah, I feel like for you, like you're so lucky that you're able to kind of play, sing, write and engineer and mix everything yourself. I mean, you're kind of one-stop shop for yourself if you want to do that, you know, and that's a yeah. cool thing to be able to do. I feel like I uh, get in my own way sometimes and I convince myself that what I'm doing is not good or something. I don't know. It's you sometimes I'm in the zone where I'm like like what I'm doing and but I mean, recently I feel like I'm always kind of like not into what I'm doing, but I've heard so many cool songs from you that like 
that you've been working on when you could just play me some and I'd be like, this is awesome. And then you'd be like, yeah, I don't know. And then you would probably just bury it. I don't know what yeah, you do with that stuff. Yeah, it probably goes away forever. There's so yeah. much cool stuff. But I feel like that's kind of what we spoke about that first time you came over. And like, that's part of where it was just refreshing to like be working on an album with somebody else. And we started making music the next time you came over and then, yeah, each song would just flow pretty quick. It, there was no overthinking it or anything. It was just like make a song in a day and then yeah. you'd come over the next week. I feel like the timing of it was good because you had that experience that we spoke about and, and I was familiar with that experience yeah. in different ways. And, uh, I feel like part of the way that we started working together was a reaction to that. It was yeah, like, it was like all right, so. we're taking this back. We're getting back into a little bedroom recording and we're yeah. going to just make music that that we love without any expectation. No one's asking for this music. No mm-hmm. one's like, it's not like the label's like financing this right now and we got to do it a certain way or answer to anybody. It was really just about getting together and just exploring music and that was what was so great about it I feel exactly, like, yeah. like the, why, why I like to make music there's no pressure or anything yeah. it's not the type of thing where you feel like you're on the dime with some record label or it's just kind of like making songs because you want to make a cool song and I feel like that always turns out the best you know there's some some people like who like to work and they like to create chaos and they think that makes for a better working environment i've never had a chaotic session or like a painful type yeah. session that's ever turned out anything interesting at all it's always yeah. just it's just it's just a complete waste as far as i'm concerned yeah i've like been with people who like they want to like take like six hours to get the drum tones up and all that and i like to just move quick i'm like dude we got to go like, oh totally yeah i mean it's if you're focusing on one thing for too long it's just not going to work out you got to like kind of be moving and like even if something if you try something for let's say 30 minutes just like trying to get some part and it's like not happening it's like just yeah move on go to something else yeah move on lay something else in and then come back or you know it's a great way to work as soon as it starts to feel stale is when you're going to lose that magic you know (laughs) because it like it's got to like flow organically so let's see. So we met, uh, we met in Malibu at the birthday party. Three months later or so, I come to your house. We decide to go for an EP and try and yeah. record like five songs. But then what happened? Like we, we started hooking up like maybe once a week or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was like once a week. And then eventually we had like 10 songs, you know, after a few months went by and we were just had a song each time that we were kind of excited about. And we didn't even think too hard about it. It was just like each time there was a new song and it was done and then we were like, cool. Yeah, the spirit of that was what was one of the greatest things about it. We would get a new song pretty much every day and after a few that I was like, could you think like when I come back to the studio in the back of my head in the car, I'd be like, well, what if we don't get one today? You know, yeah. like, is it going to happen again? And then there'd be times right before we'd break to get some food where I'm thinking like, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen today. You yeah. know? And then out of nowhere by the afternoon, it would just like pull it together. Poof, it would just yeah. somehow come. And uh, I remember just being like, well, I can't believe it, you know? And, and, you know, some are obviously more meaningful than others, but I, I, I do feel like there was a consistency there, at least, yeah. you know, for what I'm trying to do that kept happening. You so. never know which, what's going to happen. That's the thing. It's such a mystery. You never know which song is going to come together in a certain way. Or That's gonna, what I love. Yeah. I, it's weird because I see a parallel there. Like, you know, I've been touring for the last four years, pretty much solo acoustic. And my whole, my only rule is no set list. Yeah. Because for me, like growing up, music was just like, it was like, you know, it was cliche, but it was just freedom and it was fun. And that was all. And if it ever creeps to this place where it isn't fun anymore and it feels like a trap, it's like, 
you got to mix it up. Yeah, you, you got to take a break at that point yeah. or something. And so I feel like in a weird way, having no plan every time we'd come in was like almost the equivalent of no set list. You know, it was like mm-hmm. we just kept creating something new every time. And, uh, you know, so this record, we're here, we're here to talk mainly about this record, Caretakers, yeah. which came out on uh, August 9th on Shelly Records. It's my first fully independent release. But um, this is really the first installment of a lot more music that Jackson and I made together that, you know, we'll probably continue releasing. Yeah, um, it'll be fun to make some more too. I think at this point, it's been a couple months since we like got to making music, but the last song we made actually is on Caretakers. Yeah, the last song that we did, you know, is called A Fire in the Sun and that jumped some other songs that we had done prior and just seemed really interesting to us. I, I remember the synths that you laid down on the chorus just gave me that. I think I was watching Stranger Things at the time and it just gave me this heavy Stranger Things vibe. Yeah. And just, you know, lyrically it was resonating with me and so it made it onto the record. About three quarters of the way through when we were recording, Jackson... Uh, got a house and he moved and so there was a, also this new studio space yeah, to go into yeah. and I remember the same thing happened when I was making music for the morning after we were in his this little garage in Van Nuys and then he moved and Walt moved to Culver City and I remember thinking oh like what if we lose the vibe we're going to go to a new place yeah. and I took a plastic bottle of water and drank it and I squeezed it and I sucked the air from the old studio yeah. into it and I, really? I closed yeah. the cap and then we went to Culver City and I remember I released the air into the studio. Like, now the magic is here. And then the first two songs we recorded were On Your Side and Sleep Better in that room in the new really? studio. Yeah. Wow. And so I was like, I think we still got it. And so it was okay. And then, you know, we I feel like when we moved to the new studio at your new house, you had just got that new piano. Yeah. And so instantly there were these new songs that aren't on this record that have this beautiful piano aesthetic that you created that uh, we went in that direction. We took it a different way and it lent lent something cool just moving into the new room. I think it can be, I've definitely been there where I kind of trick myself into thinking that a certain studio space or something is like the key. And then when I'm moving to another space, like I, I'm like, Oh no, we're going to lose the vibe. Like kind of what you're saying, but you know, it's probably not that simple. I think it's more of a mindset. A lot of it's probably getting in your own head or something. And so if you believe that, then you could bring that to fruition. But if you don't believe that, then, you know, you could keep going. But yeah, I think Fire in the Sun is the only song on the album that we did in my new house. And that's one of my favorites. That happened so, like, quickly. I just kind of, like, played some instruments and then you sang in, like, one take. Yeah. Dan Field was in the room. He was there. I think you left and I sang the vocal, but yeah. yeah. But the vocal only took like two minutes because you just sang it all at once. Yeah, just the music was hitting me so Mm -hmm. hard. It just came right out. So that was cool. So, um, you know, I don't want to take up too much uh, more of anybody's time. And and I would like to thank uh, Talk House for letting us uh, be a part of their community. And, uh, if you haven't heard Daywave, Jackson's band, please check them out. And if you haven't heard this guy, Pete Yorn, definitely check him out <laughs> as well. Also listen to uh, plenty of Guided by Voices and Alex G, Sandy, and whatever else you might want to be interested in listening to. Yeah. Enjoy music. And uh, Jackson, you have anything to add to this discussion? No, I think we've kind of covered it. Um, yeah, li- make sure you listen to Caretakers out now.
Oh, that would be good. Yeah. yeah. Caretakers out now. Shelly Records, Shelly Music, available everywhere on the streaming services. And and there's some rare vinyl to be had somewhere if you could find it, peteyorn.com mm-hmm. and, uh, and some maybe local record shops around your town. And uh, hopefully we'll come to a city not too far from you and, and come. Jackson's band, Daywave, has been kind enough to help me play some live shows lately. And so maybe we're going to do a little more of that yeah. where we'll join forces and play some shows together. So looking forward to that. And I have some solo acoustic shows coming up in October, October 9th on the West Coast. Everything's at peteyorn.com. Hope to see you out there and thanks for listening. Pete Yorn, Jackson Phillips, thank you so much for joining us here on the Talk House podcast. Listeners, make sure to check out Yorn's newest record, Caretakers, co-produced, of course, by Jackson Phillips. Today's show was recorded by Dan Arnez and Mark Yoshizumi and co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi. Check out Talk House on your favorite social channel. We have some behind-the-scene pictures from this recording. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, anywhere that you are, we are. At Talk House. And TalkHouse.com. Josh, I want to take a second at the end of today's show to ask you about this amazing Wilco video that you just produced. Please, how did this come about? Oh, it's not a very exciting story, Elia. I'm sorry to say. I work with a fantastically talented director, and he was approached to direct the video, and I stood around trying to look important. It's called Everyone Hides. It's a great video, and it's uh, it's very Chicago, so Chicago people should definitely check it out. And there are several uh, Wilco Easter eggs in the video also. There definitely are. Josh, I would say you're hiding behind this director. The song Everyone Hides by Wilco out now. You've got to check out listeners this video that Josh helped put together. It's awesome. Well, thank you, Elia. The Talkhouse podcast theme song was composed and performed by The Range. Listeners, make sure to subscribe to the show to catch all of our upcoming episodes, including next week's talk between Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Tony Shea, CEO of Zappos. That was recorded live at Life is Beautiful as part of their Ideas platform. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. I'm Josh Modell. Peace. Anna Smith. DJ Khaled. Peace.